so that's also another thing that I keep in mind where I'm like, okay, is this person coming from somewhere else where potentially the way that they're talking is intended to show respect or intended to show collaboration, but that's not how we do it in the United States or that's not how we do it in California or that's not how we do it in this part of the company. And looking at culture, quote unquote, from a global all the way to a tiny macro lens and then thinking, okay, if that person is talking this way, maybe they're not meaning to attack me or make me angry. Welcome to Design to Be Conversation, presented by Design to Be, and hosted by Design to Be founder, me, Rachel Weissman. Design to Be is a community that elevates designers to become empowered, educated, and effective using EQ-based tools and practices. Designers, we know it's essential to fine-tune our craft in order to lead or create real impact. Yet, what most of us don't focus on is our relationship with the craft itself. Throughout the design process, we might experience creative blocks, burnout, overwhelm, or conflict with team members or stakeholders. Design to be aims to change that by helping to grow your EQ, by weaving authenticity, awareness, curiosity, empathy, fulfillment, meditation, resilience, trust, and much more into your design process. As designers, we love to do, we love to create, we love to reinvent, we love to uncover new solutions. What will make these creations, inventions, and solutions even more effective and unique are when we learn how to be. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. In today's episode, I speak with Greg Bennett. Greg is a conversation design principal at Salesforce, leading the company's first dedicated conversation design practice since its inception. As a linguist, Greg focuses his work on empowering designers to create conversational experiences that feel natural and helpful build user trust, and meet customer expectations. We dive into the art and science of conversation design and how to apply it to human interaction, how conversations build trust with the teammates. We break down different conversation styles and how to apply it to your design process and how mindfulness approaches can improve conversation. Greg is also an old coworker of mine from Salesforce and a dear friend, and I'm super excited to welcome him on the show today. Welcome, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say, like, it's not just exciting to be able to talk to you about the work, but it's also really, really exciting to just catch up and share space together. So it's great. Amazing. So today we are going to talk about conversations, and we'll see where it goes from there. But given your background on communication and conversation design. Mm -hmm. What we were talking about over email and when we were prepping for this was how you can design conversations for your real life. So maybe talk first about specifically what you do as a conversation designer that could give a bit more color. um, And then we can dive deeper into today's topic. Sure. Sounds good. So I am a conversation designer by way of uh, linguistics. So I studied linguistics in undergrad and grad school. For folks who are not familiar with linguistics, it's essentially the science of how language works. 
the language's different parts, how it gets used in society, in practice, and what are the patterns of linguistics. And the thing that I think is really cool about linguistics informing conversation design is that the ethos of design, from my perspective, really is about pattern sensing, pattern making, making connections. And I think that it's so, it's so cool to finally be able to take linguistics and the patterns that we know from that research and use it to kind of inform a systematic practice about this human behavior that has long since been seen as mysterious and kind of hard to figure out. People kind of look at conversation, they're like, it's an art. Well, sure, there's some art to the conversation, yes, but there's also science to it. And that's really the rigor that we bring from linguistics. There's a reason why, you know, some people get a little irritated by why the way other people talk and in different ways. And linguistics has a lot to say about why that's the case and how we can kind of start to unpack our assumptions and biases about language. And if there's anything that I've learned through working with you as a designer, Rachel, it's that, you know, you constantly have to question your own point of view, your own biases, your own assumptions. And I think a lot of times that gets looked over when it comes to language. It's like, well, I can have a conversation and therefore I must be good at it. So therefore this must be how conversation is done. And I think that last piece is the part that is the dangerous assumption part. Just because I have a conversation in this way doesn't mean that everybody else does. And so if I design a conversational experience, whether it's a voice application or a chatbot, based on the assumption of how I think or was raised to have conversation, then anyone else who doesn't practice conversation in a similar way may run into a very strong usability issue. And so the way I kind of practice my work is I go around from team to team at Salesforce and advise them based on a linguistic point of view, how we should go about articulating conversation with wide swaths of users who come from myriad backgrounds, essentially to optimize for their way of having conversation. Amazing. And I feel like that's a perfect bridge into what we're going to dive into for today's topic. So thanks for providing a bit of, of color. It already, I've already been getting some chills. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> okay. So a lot of what you alluded to is this friction or like dichotomy between like the art and science of communication. And what I'm super curious about, and I feel like our listeners are as well, is so in your day-to-day, -day, you're designing these conversations for different digital or voice experiences. How can we use these same principles in modes of collaboration or in modes of any form of like human interaction, whether it be over an email, whether it be in a brainstorm, the, the list can go on. Um, but let, let's, start, let's start there. Yeah, I think what I've noticed, especially since the advent of like text-based synchronous technologies like texting, SMS, IM chat, is that naturally users and, you know, even, you know, designers, the general public have developed a little bit more of an awareness around tone and nuance over text-based conversation. So like, oh, is this person pissed at me? Well, you can't see their face and you can't hear their voice. So how are you inferring this potential vibe from the other person that they're irritated or pissed off. Mm -hmm. Well, some of that has to do with how we experience text-based conversation with the people who we generally text with, and then potentially when you deviate from that like baseline. So let, a really popular one is like, when we text back and forth, usually 
we don't use a period at the end of our utterance before we send a message. That's our baseline. But if I put a period at the end of my message and send it to you, that's going to say something. Mm-hmm. I did a research paper on this back when I was an undergrad, which was basic, basically found that essentially the period when you sort of recruit that from like existing literature, it introduces a level of formality, right? Like when you're having conversation over text, it's seen as potentially more casual as a written format than say what you would write in a book. And so you might drop some punctuation, et cetera. So when you borrow something from that previous context of that's usually sort of referred to as literature, it introduces this level of formality, which implies distance. Like you're not formal with your friends, you're formal with strangers. And so if I'm going to put a period in a text message, then potentially I'm creating distance with you, which could then make you start to wonder, okay, it, why, would you, why would he create distance with me? Is he angry? Is he upset or whatever? And that's, I think, the an- analytical stuff that people are starting to go through now, whether that's even over email. So I think particularly when it comes to text, it's about how humans naturally leverage and manipulate the text stylistics in place of their voice or their face or their gestures to communicate that extra layer of meaning on top of whatever the words say. Because I could say, I'm doing great today versus I'm doing great today. And those have two completely different meanings. Well, how do you do that if you can't, you know, use your voice or your face or whatever to communicate that well? Now you have to do it somehow through text. Maybe you put a period at the end. Maybe you have italics or all caps for the word great. So all that to say is I think that when you can kind of understand the sort of baseline communication patterns over, say, text with a colleague or with a friend in everyday human-to-human conversation, then you can start to kind of pick apart and sort of target what the source of the misalignment is. The whole like objective of conversation is to try to find alignment with the other person. There was a research paper that a linguist by the name of Anita Pomerantz published in 1984, where she found that if you have a pause in American English that is about the length of one second or longer, it tends to predict that like what you're going to say next isn't, ne- isn't positive. It's potentially negative. You're either going to disagree with whatever previously was said, or you're going to potentially shift it a little bit, or you're going to negate it and say, no, that's not the case. The reason why I kind of think of that is I'm like, well, naturally, when we're having conversation and everybody's on the same page, ostensibly, or we agree with each other, it kind of just flows. You have to take that extra level of cognitive energy and effort to be able to break that flow and say, no, we need to shift to this instead, or no, I don't want to go down this path that we're co-creating together. Conversation is also a collaboration. For as much as I want to take you in this, take both of us in a certain direction in conversation, if you don't want to go there, you have the power to try and move the conversation in a different direction, but it's co-created together. And so by being able to sort of look at the way that the other person is communicating, whether that's through text or voice and see how they're like sort of shifting a little bit from their baseline, that's how you can start to tell, okay, are they trying to signal extra meaning to me that they're, you know, super excited or maybe less happy about the situation at hand? And then given that, how can you respond? Um, And that's sort of how I see conversation design in day-to-day life, where it's like, this person says something. Now, given my objective for this interaction, how can I respond in a way that takes us toward a particular goal? 
so, so many things to say. Um, <laughs> uh, but a lot of what this is alluding to, and I didn't expect our, the this thought to come into my mind, but a lot of what conversation design is in this lens of actual like real world interaction is very much aligned with social awareness, which is one of the pillars of emotional intelligence, which is like being aware of basically being aware of others. Yes. And I love what you said that conversations are things that you form together. And I feel like when collaboration breaks down, it's when the person walks in the room or the virtual room, <laughs> whatever yeah. it may be. Um, and they very much have a one line way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's where it breaks down. Totally. I love that you bring up social awareness because I think that's actually a fundamental like competency to have conversation. If you can't read, like, first of all, if only one person is talking, it's not a conversation. That's like a monologue or a speech or whatever. So conversation fundamentally is based on turn-taking. Therefore, it's a collaboration or exchange of some kind. And that requires for you to be able to kind of have some sort of awareness of the other person. And because conversation is fundamentally a social practice, social awareness is just, it's a cornerstone to how you can have conversation and get anywhere with another person. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or a robot. <laughs> or, or, or a robot. Um, I want to unpack one thing, one thing that you said that, I, that was really interesting. The... There's use of different punctuation or different characters that can, one, display that a certain tone with another person, or two, it can express that you're possibly not as close with someone. Say someone has recently, maybe they started a job in COVID, and they're looking to build more trust with their teammates. They're clearly not as close. So there's this formality that might already be in place. Mm -hmm. What are things that folks can do to mm -hmm. start to build trust with people and their teammates from a yeah. lens of conversation, whether it be looking both the digital lens and the, we'll call it the Zoom or GBC. Sure, yeah. Lens. I think that's a great question because fundamentally what we're talking about when we talk about conversation in this sense is about, particularly between humans, is about cultivating a relationship. So Salesforce has a whole philosophy about relationship design and how you can apply design awareness to the cultivating of relationship with relationships with others. And the way I see conversation and conversation design fitting into that is that fundamentally relationships are built on conversation you build relationships with other people by talking with them and having that kind of inter interaction and that exchange. And so I think that part of trying to build that relationship through conversation in a new space is as a conversation designer the f and linguist, the first thing that comes to mind for me is I'm like, how can I find out what the norm or the baseline is? Because if I can see how other people communicate, say, enthusiasm, or show closeness with each other in this space, then I can mirror or align myself to that. So if I'm thinking of something what, like- what, One thing, just to inter interrupt you, because I understand why this would be beneficial, but maybe someone listening doesn't. Why would sure. it be beneficial to mirror someone? I think it's beneficial mostly because it shows an alignment of your values. So like we recognize the way that we talk and the way that we express our social identity 
by seeing that sort of same expression and that same pattern of language in others. So we automatically sort of gravitate toward people who talk like us, potentially share values with us. And I think that if you want to signal to the group, hey, I'm one of you, and hey, I'm trying to get close, then by mirroring that baseline pattern that you see, you're kind of positioning yourself within the interaction, whether that's in person, in a digital space, over a GVC or, you know, a Zoom call, any one of those channels, it's a social move where you can say, hey, I'm in the in-group, or I'm trying to come in the in-group. And then it, the, essentially the the, in, the group themselves will be more likely to recognize that that's the action that you're trying to take socially. One last thing with this, and then I want you to finish your thought. What about <clears throat> for the person who's saying, okay, well, Greg, but I don't want to conform. I yes. want to be I want to be uniquely me. What are things that folks can do to still honor their authenticity mm-hmm. while respecting the culture that they're working in? I think there's something to be said about potentially having a hybrid of the two where you could see like like let's say you and I'll get up more into this in a minute, but conversational style is sort of, I think, the foundation of how this this all sort of happens. Every time we have a conversation, whether it's over voice, over video, over chat, everything has to be said in some way. And that way is style. It's just how you talk. It's how you communicate. But it's very indicative of what you value and how you grew up speaking and how you grew up communicating and the people and communities you've communicated with over the course of your life. I think there's something to be said about recognizing, okay, I'm part of this group who communicates in this particular way. And if it's somehow different than the way that you talk or the way that you communicate, how can you sort of find what the potential, because you can't be completely different, right? Like there's got to be some overlap somewhere. So maybe Mm -hmm. I chat a lot. If, I mean, you know this, you've been in meetings with me (laughs) at work. Like I will, the first thing I'll do is fire up in Google chat and it's full of emojis and commentary on whatever's going on. And it's just this constant stream. Sometimes I'll be working in groups where I'm the only one doing that. So I'll think, okay, there isn't as many people who are essentially practicing this kind of communication. And that's how I show involvement when I'm in a meeting, even if I'm not speaking. It's how I show that I'm engaged. Maybe I tone it down just a little bit because this group, I don't have to stop entirely, but this group isn't maybe as used to it. And then over time, I'll just sort of move the needle a little bit until we get back to like sort of my standard that might have something like potentially like emoji usage. Maybe you enter a group of people and you use a lot of emojis and they don't, and they might have like the full punctuation or whatever, but you can sort of maybe don't use it as often as you would with your friends who sort of use it in a similar pattern as you, but you don't abandon it entirely. And that's how you can sort of show your individuality, but also create alignment with someone who has a different conversational style than yours. Amazing. Thank you for honoring that tangent. Um, Sure. That's a great tangent. (laughs) Looping back into what you were saying about mirroring and going Hmm. down that that path. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it's not that far of a tangent. I think they're actually quite related in that, you know, by showing to the other person or the group as a whole that talking in a similar way or indicating closeness or desire to be close in the way that they show closeness with each other is like essentially a signal to that group. Hey, we talk in a similar way. I'm trying to signal to you that like, I want to be part of the group. And they're more likely to recognize that you're sending that signal if you're, you know, potentially aligning the way that you convey that in to the language in the way that they use it. 
And we were talking about this a bit before, but you mentioned that there are different conversation styles that folks can be aware of. And I feel like this very much fits into this specific use case, but for other use cases that folks can apply and how they interact with their fellow designers or maybe their PM or their researcher or whomever it may be. Absolutely. So I think conversational style oftentimes is a source of a lot of communication, particularly like difference, differences in conversational style. So like I said, conversational style is just the way you talk. And it's a linguistic discovery made by Deborah Channon, who is a sociolinguist. And her seminal work was on trying to understand how people who have perceivingly different methods of communicating, different styles of talking, sort of negotiate an interaction with each other when they're all put around the same space. So the really famous study is that she had friends over for Thanksgiving dinner and she put a tape recorder in the middle because this was the 80s. And she had some people who were from New York, some people who were from California, and the New Yorkers and the Californians didn't always have the smoothest communication. Um, And what she noticed was that the Californians practiced conversation in a way where it was clear they believed that only one voice should be heard at a time in conversation. So if you're talking at the same time as me, it's a power move. You're trying to take over the conversational floor. The speakers from New York practice conversation where multiple voices should be heard at a time in order to to indicate that they're enthusiastic for and engaged in the conversation at hand. And they believe that if you're not talking at the same same time as me, essentially you're bored. Interesting. So when you put those two competing styles, they're not actually competing, they're really on a spectrum. But when you put those two different styles together, high considerateness being the one from California, the ones who believe only one voice should be heard at a time, and then high involvement, the ones from New York who believe that multiple voices should be heard at a time, they sort of drive each other apart. Meaning that the ones from New York think that the ones from California are bored because they're not talking at the same time as me. So they're going to talk even more as a way to kind of motivate them because that's how they would motivate someone else who was a high involvement speaker to talk more by talking more. The high considerateness speakers from California are like, okay, you're talking more because you really just want to own this conversation. So I can't get a word in edgewise and they talk less Mm -hmm. and they end up essentially driving each other apart. There's a big fancy term for that phenomenon that Deborah Tannen calls complementary schismogenesis which big fancy term if you want to impress people, but essentially just means, you know, the more you try to fix something using your own style without essentially considering the way that other person with a different style might remedy the situation would drive the two people apart. So all that to say is like potentially uh, you might be in an interaction with say a fellow designer, a researcher, a PM, an engineer, I see a lot of these between engineers and designers um, in particular, where it might be as a result, it's not necessarily what they're talking about, but the way they're talking about it, where I've heard some folks say like, oh, that engineer is really aggressive. And I'm like, are they aggressive? Or do they just have a falling at the intonation at the end of all the sentences that they say? And it makes it sound like even if they're asking a question, it's declarative. And 
of course, like I don't lead that lead with that in discussion with a fellow designer. I'll be like, well, tell me more and blah, blah, blah. Cause you know, I used to be a researcher, so I'll facilitate them, but they'll be like, yeah, I feel like, you know, they're not listening to me or like, they're not asking me any questions. They're just telling me what to do. And I'm like, but if you, if I had like a printout of the transcript because I'm old school and I use paper, you would see like what they said was actually framed as a question. Syntactically, it might be like, why are you doing that? But the way they said it was, why are you doing that? And that could be seen as offensive potentially on the part of the designer. That's just a conversational style difference. I think the interesting thing to note there is that you know, if you're talking with someone who maybe their first language is in English, that potentially they're sort of communicating in English with like vocal tones and, and whatnot that might be transferred over from their first language. So there was a really famous study done by a linguist from Cal Berkeley, John Gumpers, I believe it was in 1982, where he was asked to come to Heathrow Airport in London, because there was this dispute between like the serving staff at a cafeteria and the customers. Well, the serving staff in the cafeteria were all from Pakistan. The customers were all British. The British thought that all the serving staff were rude. And the reason why they thought they were rude was because as they go down the line to get food in the cafeteria and they get to the part where they're supposed to get gravy for their meat, the cafeteria person would say gravy while they're holding out the ladle and like the gravy is in front of them. And the British like speakers essentially thought like, okay, you're saying this to me as if you're just pointing out what's obvious in front of me. That's super offensive. Why aren't you asking me if I want gravy? But it turns out that in Pakistan to signal respect to someone Falling intonation is what you use with the other person. So they were using, the Pakistani English speakers were using this falling intonation to show deference or respect toward the customers. But because that's not how you show respect in English when you're asking a question, the British English speakers were all super pissed off. So that's also another thing that I keep in mind where I'm like, okay, is this person coming from somewhere else where potentially the way that they're talking is intended to show respect or intended to show collaboration, but that's not how we do it in the United States, or that's not how we do it in California, or that's not how we do it in this part of the company. And looking at culture, quote unquote, from a global all the way to a tiny macro lens, and then thinking, okay, if that person is talking in this way, maybe they're not meaning to attack me or make me angry. And then what are the different permutations around that? I feel like so much of what you said is it gets it comes back to an awareness of like what are what's the other's intent and most likely and I'm not going to say everyone but most likely the person who you're collaborating with or is a stakeholder that you're trying to get approval from likely they have good intent and likely they're also just trying to make the best possible thing Yes. And you're all working towards a common goal. But everyone is simply coming from their own perspective, which is manifested through their own form of communication style. Are there things that, and I feel like this kind of circles back to what we spoke about at the beginning, but are there things that folks can do to, there are people who, like my PM, I have conversations with probably every day. Um, yeah. And I would feel very comfortable just being like, hey, this is, uh, this is my communication style. When I say this, I feel this. I notice you feel, you say this like this. And sometimes I feel hurt when you say this. 
And I feel like that's one way of going about it, of having a very transparent, open, aware kind of dialogue. Are there other ways to either with counterparts that you're quite close with or counterparts that you're not as close with to like pinpoint these different styles, whether it be within yourself or within others? Yeah, I think. Again, like one thing that I like to look for is where, like, because I consider all language and all conversations to be data, essentially, where can I see examples of this? Like, can I watch, like, let's say I'm having a, you know, a tough time finding my conversational footing or, you know, aligning with a stakeholder and having conversation with them. Can I watch them have conversation with someone else? Or can I watch them have conversation with someone on their team or one of their reports or another designer or a researcher and see what like potentially the differences are and how those people maybe manage conversation with that person. So that way I can kind of start to adjust mine myself. Like perhaps this person just talks at the same time as everybody. Okay. I know they're a high involvement conversational person. Now I have to step up my game and talk at the same time as him. And I'm speaking from experience in the sense that like I've worked with folks like that before and it's very uncomfortable for me. I'm a high considerateness speaker. So I think only one voice should be heard at a time in conversation. I was raised in California. So that's likely why <laughs> when I work with folks and stakeholders who are high, high involvement, I actively, it's almost, and this is sort of where I really rely on my mindfulness practice because I really do think like being able to have conversation and being aware of conversational styles is an extremely mindful process and extremely mindful practice. You have to be very self-aware and very aware of the moment, but also be able to kind of zoom out and look across all the angles without judging it. Because we are very, very prone to judging the way other people talk and judging the, uh, the way others use language. And that's why I like to sort of recruit that tool from mindfulness to kind of peel that off. Like, you know, they're not bad at this or they're not good at that. They are just doing conversation. And how am I experiencing it? And so I think that when it comes to the situation of, okay, they're a high involvement speaker. I know that if I want to show alignment with or help build a stronger relationship with this person, I have to flex a little bit in the direction of high involvement that I'm like, okay, I recognize in this moment that I feel incredibly uncomfortable. However, for the sake of the relationship, I'm going to talk at the same time as this person because I know they don't believe it's rude and just go for it. And it's hard. It's, it's really not easy. Like despite having the training in linguistics and knowing the science around it, it still doesn't make the sort of emotional connection to it um, any easier. But that's again, where I sort of like personally, I rely more on, you know, mindfulness approaches to be able to get through that. So yeah, data, mindfulness, because I think also mindfulness is extremely important when let's say you've tried the data approach or you've tried the more sort of forthright, transparent approach that you had mentioned, which I think is also a great one. But if you've tried that and let's say the stakeholder or the other person doesn't adjust, like you say, okay, this is how I like to communicate. When you say this in this way, it makes me feel blah. And they go, okay, okay. And then, you know, they write it down in their notebook and they adjust or they don't, <laughs> and they just keep on doing whatever it is that you ask them to not do, or actively just does the opposite of what you ask them to do, et cetera. I've absolutely worked with stakeholders who are like that before. And that's, again, when I'm like, okay, so the only thing I can, because you can't ever control another person, right? Like for as much as conversation is a collaboration, you can't control that other person. 
And so at some point, that's when it's like, okay, even though we're in this together, I'm alone in how I react to this situation. And that's where the mindfulness comes in to be like, okay, this person is saying things in this way. I've already communicated that it upsets me for X, Y, and Z reasons. Now I can at least look at it and say, okay, they're doing this in this way. It may not necessarily be intentionally to hurt me. How can I recognize that, okay, you know, conversationally, this is what's going on in the interaction. And how can I kind of let that go? Those are sort of my tips. I I loved how you mentioned all you can do is express how you react or express how you respond because it's very easy to pinpoint of it was their fault or like, I don't agree with what they're saying or the reason why this failed is because of them taking complete ownership through expression, which is done conversationally Mm -hmm. is the only way to ultimately increase collaboration which ultimately then creates better products which then ultimately helps the world and like all that good stuff absolutely but i feel like that first step is like taking that ownership through those different avenues that you mentioned whether it be through cultivating a more mindful practice looking at the data or having those transparent conversations which we mentioned which we mentioned are great ways to ultimately increase your collaboration. Yes. Out of the different ways of communication that we spoke about, so we spoke about increasing collaboration. Are there other importances that we should highlight in the realm of conversation that folks should be aware of that can help improve their skill set as a designer? Ooh. I think potentially one that comes to mind is persuasion. Mm. So like there's, I think, and I think it's an element of collaboration. So if we don't want to go too deep into it, that's also, I don't mind. Um, Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. So. (sighs) I I think persuasion is really, is really important because it's, it's generating buy-in. You're clearly so excited about your design because it was, your baby, you added those pixels together, you drew that wireframe, and then you're showing it to someone else. And that's the maybe, hopefully, it's not the first time they're seeing it because you brought them along on the journey, (laughs) hopefully. But no matter what it is, you're genuinely so excited. Yes. And so expressing that through a persuasive way is Mm -hmm. so important. So, So, yeah, I think it's very similar to, I think, what I was saying earlier about, like, you had asked me about, okay, how do you want to signal to a group that you know, you want to be close or, you know, closeness with them, even though you're relatively new or whatever. I also consider that to be a degree of persuasion where you're almost trying to persuade those members of the group or that particular person or colleague or stakeholder. We are aligned. I'm trying to, I'm trying to convince you through like both explicitly and subtly that we are aligned in value, that we are aligned in communication, that we are aligned in style. And so I think the same goes for when your outright objective is to generate buy-in, because it's effectively trying, you're, you're effectively trying to get that other person to align with, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to promote or convince. And so I think in that regard, again, it's about understanding for your stakeholder what do they value for the business? Yes. But also what do they value when they communicate? 
maybe that means like if they're a high involvement speaker, maybe that means when you're presenting and they're talking and giving feedback, you encourage yourself to talk at the same time as them. Even as, as foreign or as weird as that might feel, if you're a high considerateness speaker that, okay, I know that this person is going to value this interaction even more if I'm talking at the same time as them, because I know that that's how they talk. Conversely, if you are a high involvement speaker and it, it becomes very clear that your main stakeholder that you're trying to convince for buy-in is a high considerateness speaker, give them the space for as much as it would feel extremely weird and anxiety provoking to not talk, talk, talk your way through it, take a pause, give them the space because that's what they're expecting. So I think there's that method of communication too, beyond just the persuasion of what it is that, you know, you're trying to convey in terms of business value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other point that I would highlight there is which I feel like it is implied in my, in my mind. And I feel like you highlighted the part that is not implied, okay. <laughs> um, but is understanding also like, what are, what are their goals? And say it's yes. a PM, like they really value like the voice of the business. And if it's an engineer, they're looking at, can this be built? And everyone is coming from, okay, how will this work for me? <laughs> And I feel like 100%. a lot of time that's where that there's the style of communication and then yes. there's the subject of the communication itself. Absolutely. And, and the framing and angle of it. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Continue what you're saying. No, I just, I completely agree with what you were saying. Like, because essentially what you were like referencing, like whether it's PM or engineering or research or marketing that potentially you have to just sort of turn the crank a little bit and frame your, your work just a little differently, depending on the audience. And maybe that, you know, you can do that at the conversational style layer, but you can also do that at the content layer where it's like, okay, for my PM, I'm going to focus on anchoring this work in terms of driving adoption. But for my engineer, I'm going to focus on anchoring this work in terms of feasibility or, you know, how many sprints it's going to take us to get to completion. For research, I'm going to frame it in terms of, you know, what kind of insights can we generate and how can we further inform our, you know, approach to tailoring as closely to the user personas as possible. For marketing, it might be more like PR, et cetera, and how it's a boon in that regard. So, like, both layers, I think, are, are totally important. And... For, can you share an example of, or a, a couple a couple things here? So I'm completely sold on the fact that kind of altering how you speak results in like creating better product and also better collaboration. For someone who's possibly having the thought of, Greg, Rachel, isn't that just manipulation? That sounds, it sounds kind of, I don't, I don't know about that. I very much clearly, in my mind, it's very clear of you're meeting the other person where they're at and you're empathizing with their point of view. Yes. Anything else that you would add to that person that is more operating from this story of manipulation that should there should just be this single story versus... Yeah. I think what you had said earlier about intent is really important to keep in mind, like where are you operating from, but also authenticity. Like, I think it 
it's you potentially sort of move more into man, quote unquote manipulative territory when you abandon your native conversational style altogether for the sake of you know a career or business outcome where it's like okay now i'm like i'm just trying to you know ram this through my sort of personal values and identity be damned like i think it's really important to remember the way you talk is directly a reflection of your social identity so if you negate or obscure or just throw that away it's almost like an act of harm or betrayal toward yourself for the sake of some external goal that's sort of what i see as like potentially within the realm of manipulation where i'd be like you don't need to sacrifice your conversational style entirely it's like you said like it's more about trying to kind of turn the dial and adjust with along the spectrum to try and create closeness i mean if you i think a really cynical view of it could potentially be like okay if i'm thinking strategically about how to have conversations and how to develop relationships i'm being machiavellian or cynical but at the same time i'm like even if you're not sort of consciously thinking strategically about this that's just how we as humans operate we gravitate toward people who seem similar to us in value similar to us in outlook on the world and we convey that with how we talk with how we communicate and so i think from that perspective you know it's not really again like you had said not about manipulating the other person but really more about trying to help clear the channel so that way the message that you intend gets to them in the way that you intended it and sometimes like the way they receive information is different than how you're used to communicating it but if the objective is to try and create alignment then you have to kind of change the way you communicate it enough that it can be received if that makes any sense yeah completely completely and yeah the I have nothing else to add. I have nothing else to add. <laughs> so I, let's start wrap, wrapping up. One final question, and we can get a, a bit more like nitty gritty of sharing okay. a, a specific example of a way that you communicated throughout a pro, throughout a project, which completely changed the arc of a project. So maybe mm. you can. I'll give you the option of just sharing a success story or. A, a not so success story, but maybe, but either way, highlighting some uh, learning that folks can uh, apply to um, their next working day. Sure. I mean, I think probably the biggest example that comes to mind for me is when I started working on Einstein bots at Salesforce, which is our our chatbot builder uh, platform. I started out in the very very early phases of the project where. At the time the team was taking a direction that I wasn't sure was maybe the right one. And at the time I was also working in a user research or UX research capacity, so I thought, okay, how can I kind of help steer the ship without also seeming like, you know, a know-it-all, without coming in and trying to sort of like just bulldoze my way my way through or seeming like I'm ladder climbing or whatever. I really just genuinely think I'm like I think we're moving away from our users rather than toward them on our current path. How can I steer this and sort of make sure that like folks are are bought in? I conducted actually a usability study where at the beginning I was like, okay, all of the work that we're doing with you know this product has been on Persona A. I'm going to just see if Persona B can use what we're making. 
because I'm pretty sure that Persona B is actually the majority of our user, user base. So I conducted a usability study. Turns out that all these changes needed to be made in order to optimize for Persona B. I linked that with some previous research about how Persona B is the majority of our user base. And then I was like, now I have to socialize these findings and potentially convince the team, hey, we have to actually change gears before you know we announce the product or whatever. So I started out sort of from the bottom up. I started with like my most direct stakeholders and said, okay, well, you've been aware of this study. This is what I found. Now we need to communicate this upward. Um, and eventually I ended up sort of talking to several people until I got to the head of product, like the president of product at the time. And I had like five minutes to, conv <laughs> to convey like, hey, we actually need to move in this direction. And oh, by the, by the way, you might want to rethink naming the product or renaming the product. That was challenging, especially because I was like, I've never presented to this person before. I've only seen him interact on stage. So I don't really know what he's like in one-on-one -on -one conversation, but like, I have to figure out how I'm going to persuade him. Oh, and he's not a first speaker of English. And I know nothing about how to communicate or show respect in his first language. So like as a linguist, I'm just like thinking about all these things. And luckily what, what the way it sort of played out was I think it was like an hour long meeting and my presentation was maybe in like the latter half. So I had about 30 minutes to watch everybody present to him and watch, like give comments and interact with other folks to then see, okay, so high considerateness. I shouldn't talk at the same time as him, but at the same time, he also has this sort of like strong, like sentence final intonation. Like I was doing all the linguistic analysis in my head. And so I'm like, okay, like strong declarative statements, but at the same time, leave a pause. And that was sort of what I went with. And I was like, okay, here's what we've been doing with the product. Here's where I think we should go. Here's what I found in the study. These are my recommendations. And I was trying to practice that as like strongly as possible. And then he responded and I was just like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Like this could either be really great or I'm really going to get it from my manager <laughs> in about an hour. And it turns out he was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like the, the findings held together. I anchored it in terms of what he is the head of product, product values in terms of product attrition, et cetera, adoption. And I sort of tweaked my conversational style in a way that kind of aligned as closely as I could think of, given the data I had in the moment to his. So yeah, and then, you know, the product direction shifted. So that's a success story. I think moments when I was less successful, like I alluded to it a little bit earlier when I mentioned that I had a stakeholder where I tried the approach that you had mentioned, where it was this transparent conversation of like, when you say things like this, they make me feel like I don't do anything here. And <laughs> they make me feel like I'm not part of a team, etc. Could you potentially do X, Y, and Z instead? And then he would be like, yeah, write it in his notebook and then just keep on doing whatever he was doing. And that's in that moment when I was like, okay, I don't really have a ton of other levers I can pull interactionally. In the moment when that's happening to me in the interaction, I just have to really lean hard into my mindfulness practice and be like, detach, 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 because it's just not good for my mental health. <laughs> And then also sort of, if you know, as much as I could lean on my colleagues and managers, manager at the time to be like, hey, do you have any other ways of potentially communicating this to him? Or can you reinforce the message that I'm also sending? So the, my main, I have three main takeaways that I took yeah. from, from your story is one, an, like awareness of value of the person that you're communicating with, or sorry, four. Yes. Uh, 
be a, so as designers, we work within constraints. So mm-hmm. your main constraint was time, mm-hmm. um, but you had the, the blessing of going last. So that gave you an option to an opportunity to, to learn. Mm-hmm. And the, the last thing being um, about mindfulness or really being aware of how you're feeling and how you can appropriately respond in a situation, um, which I feel like are excellent things for folks to really start to weave into their day-to-day. Awesome. Last question is if what's one thing that folks can we've we've given a lot of incredible tips in the realm of conversation but what's one thing that you can ask of our listeners um, that they could start doing maybe tomorrow maybe they're listening to this on their commute to the kitchen yeah <laughs> um, what's one thing that they could start doing um, to start elevating their uh, communication skills? I think the first thing and potentially the most valuable tool is to just listen, like listen to a lot of people having conversations and just observe, like, are they talking at the same time as each other? You know, are there disagreements that arise as a result of that? Or are they talking at the same time as each other and they seem to just be doing it more and they're really invested? Are they not talking at the same time as each other? How is that going? I think it's just really important to listen a lot because, you know, again, there's a bunch of different ways of having conversation. A lot of people do it very differently than the way that we do. And in order to sort of increase your capacity as a designer to both, you know, align to stakeholders who have a different conversational style than you, or as a conversation designer, in particular, if you're designing a conversational experience for users who don't talk the same way that you do, it's important to start to strip away that bias and to just cultivate an awareness that, hey, people talk differently and there are patterns to that, yes, and they are neither good nor bad, they just are. How can I learn a little bit more about these patterns? I love it. And I feel like <laughs> if there's an episode two or, or like a second round, there's a whole other realm that we can dive into about listening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I love, love that advice, so... Thank you. Thank you so much, Greg, for joining the show today. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to catch up and dive into this topic that I love that you're so passionate about. And I hope that everyone um, took something valuable away from. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me. It was so good to catch up and so good to chat with you. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you are curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to be a more empowered, educated, and effective designer, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. You can take our design process EQ quiz or sign up for a newsletter to receive the latest Design to Be community building, live offerings, and self-inquiry guidance directly to your inbox. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. Be sure to share this podcast with a fellow designer who's interested in investing in their EQ. And again, thanks so much for listening.